times when our world can seem shrouded in darkness, when we ourselves appear without hope or future, in times like these, comfort can be drawn from the most simple of pleasures. My name is Jeremy Phillips, writer, critic, and applesauce sandwich, and you're listening to Cinema Limbo. This evening's feature is Toys, a 1992 fantasy comedy starring Robin Williams and co-written and directed by Barry Levinson. I'm joined by friend of the stars and Podnose mastermind George Grimwood on a sunny evening in the saloon bar of BFI Southbank. what it wants what does it want well it's it's a weird film it's mm. it was a long cherished passion project for Barry Levinson uh, he'd been working on it for about 10 years uh, so like Rain Man uh, Bugsy these were all stepping stones for him to get toys made oh my think about that well, I didn't realise he did Rain Man uh, for some reason. Yeah, oh. he's, a, he's an odd director because I associate him with Rain Man and doing down-to-earth, character-based drama. Mm. Or within, there's an edge of comedy to Rain Man because I watched it again a while ago. I was surprised by how funny it is. A deliberately funny, not yes. like, ha-ha, mentler. Mm. Um, like Sling Blade. Yes, yeah, he yeah, was basically playing a waxwork of himself. Mm. Who'd win in a fight? Sling Blade or Rain Man? It would be Sling Blade because he's a murderer and Rain Man would run away and not like want to be touched by anybody. Because they both sound like superheroes. Sling Blade, Rain Man. Yes, I suppose so. You think of any other mentally handicapped superheroes? Hmm. That's that's a whole new cinematic universe that we should uh, incorporate. Forrest Gump mediating. Yeah. Because he doesn't really sound like a superhero. No, he's the Nick Fury of the team. Yes. Oh, I think we've got a franchise. I saw Toys probably not long after it came out on video, which I think was uh, late 1993. Hmm. It was uh, rented for my boarding house at boarding school. It's a whole other story. Um, but we'd have a Sunday night movie, and it would be something that was theoretically appropriate for a, an, an audience of 11- and 12-year-olds. Hmm. And we were presented with this. Yeah. It had quite a well-known trailer at the time. Yes, and that was more lively than what the end result kind of felt. Yes, it's, it's just Robin Williams standing in a field talking to the camera about this new film he's done and just riffing and doing voices and little bits of business. And... As far as I recall, no actual footage from the film. Yes. Well, that was the first thing I noticed about re-watching the film as a whole, was that it seemed like there were a lot of unusual sets in which he could then just riff on... They, I, I felt there was a lot of parts of it where Barry Levinson might just go there and say, they're doing this. Yeah, so like the vomit or or uh, or any of it really. He, he, there's a lot of bits where it feels because he makes a very topical gags along the way. And, yes, and it just feels like he is riffing. And they said, "Oh, let's just just run with it." And so his character is never fully structured, which may or may not be a. Good it's thing. a it's a problem, and we'll get on to why it's a problem. Oh yes, this was Levinson's passion project, and it was released in time for Christmas 1992. Yes, uh, they'd spent about a year filming it. All the interiors, I believe, are custom-built sets. Right. And they look amazing, and they're incredibly detailed. Yeah. And then when it came out, the reviews were sniffy, and box office was very bad. Yeah. And the thing is, I remember seeing... I've got it on VHS. I've got it you oh. know, as it came out, probably the following Christmas, I imagine. 1993. I probably got it 1993 Christmas VHS. Yeah, that sounds about right. I, if I'm not mistaken, I, my notes, according to my notes, it did come out at Christmas 1992 in America. Oh, yes. But we got it in March. Well, it was quite normal for there to be a bit more of a delay uh, between British and American, or American and British release dates, than there is now. 
I mean, I remember summer of 96, Independence Day didn't come out until August. And it wasn't really until, I think, the Matrix Revolutions when simultaneous worldwide releases became the norm. And that was hmm. 2003. But I feel that maybe even more so than it could have been, even more confusing perhaps to a, a, a child than it could have been if you were living in the UK at the time, to go and see this film Toys in March 1993, and it opens with um, a, a very pageant. floppy... Um, you know, it's, it's, yeah, you know, ballerinas, snowmen, gingerbread men, baubles, candy canes, reindeer, Christmas trees, elves, nutcrackers. And Father Christmas flying a plane. Yeah, uh, dropping little, <coughs> little, uh, little, uh, bombs, parachuted presents, present bombs. And it's just, yeah, it, it's very, um, floppy. Well, that's the weird thing is that it starts and ends at Christmas and it has that Christmas imagery very heavily then. And it was released at Christmas. But I feel that was more to... That just because that, that's the time of year when you go and see films with your family. Mm. Or films, films more for younger children. Because this is, film is perfectly suited for younger children. Or anyone. Well, people who like sets. Well, People who like Michael Gambon. It looks great. Actually, oh, it looks sensational. And I believe it was the sets were Oscar nominated. The well, design you, is incredible. You've just made me wonder... What what was Michael Gambon's career like at that point in the early nineties? What was he what was he coming off the end of or the? I mean, well, it had been about six years since he'd done the Seeing Detective. Oh, and that had been a, I mean, obviously that was massive in the UK, but it was a big critical success in America, mm. where I believe it had on PBS. So he was. Oh, and I think he'd also just done for television. Weirdly, May Gray, because the last time you and I recorded, we ended up talking about Rowan Atkinson in May Gray. Full circle, you see. Uh, but yeah, yeah he'd just done a, a new version of May Gray for ITV. Yeah. Which I remember being on, I didn't watch, and in retrospect, it was probably a good idea. But it, it, you know, it was a, a prestige production, big star name. So he was certainly a major name in the UK, and I think almost certainly a, a, a character actor of prowess and he probably America. he's probably certainly fancied something a bit lighter since 1989 when he recorded the cook the uh, film the cook the thief his wife and her lover yes of course um yeah i mean which is another film with amazing sets imagine if this was a michael gambon double bill the cook the thief his wife her lover followed by toys i'm just imagining what toys would have been like if it had been made by peter greenaway michael gambon in the cook the thief his wife and her lover being a very grotesque character oh yes and it doesn't end well f- well, really, from anyone. Well, the kitchen staff. Yeah, they seem quite happy, but, I mean, health and safety would close them down straight away after a stunt like that, to be perfectly honest. I mean, how, how would you feel if, if Toys was directed by NWR? That would be interesting, because I always like seeing people working out of the, outside of their comfort zone. So the idea of him doing a film that's, in theory, aimed at a family audience would be interesting, because he'd really... Di- he, I'm sure he could, like, dial back all the weirdness... Or, you know, the, or the, the nastiness, rather. He keep the weirdness, because that's mm. what the film is driven by. Yeah, I'd like to see it. I mean, it's like, like Peter Greenaway. You couldn't really do a Peter Greenaway version of this, because like, if they, when they break the toys, toys open, it would just be like meat flying out. Yeah. Or maggots. Well, I mean, that's the thing, is that it's, it's for a film that's so diverse in terms of its, you know, its set design and really yeah. quite forward-thinking, um, it's unfortunate in a way that it, Barry Levinson doesn't have that level of Oh, it's a it's a it's a Barry Levinson film. You know, people don't. You know what I mean? It sort of it doesn't have there's, that. Level. There's nothing out. Well, you mean in terms of um, distinctive authorship? Yeah, like in the way that you'd say, oh, that's a Kubrick film. Or well, that's, that's, a that's, the, film. that's the problem. Is that he doesn't seem to have, or doesn't seem to have generated any kind of particular authorial stamp. If this is the movie that he's always wanted to do, there's nothing else like it in his filmography. And, well, I mean, one of his most recent movies, he did a found footage horror, which is possibly, the, I mean, obviously, discounting Blair Witch Project, because you always have to, one, possibly the best found footage horror I've ever seen, called The Bay, which was a really clever, well-thought-out film about a viral outbreak in a seaside town. And it was really cleverly made, really well-written, barely got released, because he can barely get films released now, because his... Film, his filmography is so wildly varied you never know what he's going to do next and you never know if it's going to be another Rain Man 
or if it's going to be a toys, which is like a big thing that just fails, or if it's going to be the bay, which just gets lost in the the morass of being too similar to everything else that's on the market. Yeah. I mean, that's the one thing you can say about toys. There's nothing else like it. Absolutely. Uh, it's, it, it, it stands alone, but then, um, you know, so did uh, that guy in the French film. Well, the, the impression I get straight away is that when you get General Leland Zevo played yeah. by... Um, and, of course, straight away, with the colours and the kind of the design, Zevo equals Devo in my head. Oh, yeah. And especially even, even with the music video later on in the film, which we'll get back to. Yeah. Uh, there's that element. But when we meet the brother, Kenneth... Yes. Well, sh- shall we lead into that? Because okay. we're, that's, that's right at the start of the movie. The movie does start with the 20th Century Fox logo, but with a wind-up sound. Yes. So it's as if they're, they're, we're winding up the movie to set it going. And the sound of what I thought initially was a goat, but later hits here and see the cow. I thought it was a goat, but you actually see the cow with that weird... It's, yeah, it's, like a, it's like, a, a la- like a laughing toy. Yeah. But it's say, like, here we're going into the world of toys, and we have the whole Christmas pageant ballet in the, the big model of Manhattan. And because we get wound up by it. Well, well, you maybe, but um, the owner, the owner of this toy factory, Zevo Toys, the owner of it, Kenneth, is very, very old and he's dying. I found that to be very macabre, in in many respects, because if you're going into this going, oh Christmas, oh happy, and bearing in mind that scene continues to play in the backdrop behind his office whilst yeah. it's still going, and then and then he just. Yeah, the, the, the fact that the beanie, you know, it's, yeah, it's a kind of a little dark comic element where he's wearing a beanie that's hooked up to his pacemaker, as Owen Owens tells us. Who, now, Owen Owens, the actor, who, who is the kind of the, the, uh, the, the advisor or kind of like the, uh, the assistant who's been locked. Yes. Am I, now, I'm, I'm going by visuals here. I, d- I couldn't tell you what his name was. And based on your look, neither can I. I can't neither remember. Can but um, I, is he, did he play Old Smee in Hook? Old Smee? Uh, yeah, or old... And old, the one who goes, I've lost my marbles in Hook. Oh! Uh, um, Same era? Robin Williams Yes, again? yes. I got completely confused. I, forgot, I thought, yeah, Owen Owens is the name of the character he plays in Hook. No, it's not. It's the name no. of his character in Toys. Smee is Bob Hoskins, isn't it? Smee is Bob Hoskins, which is Bob, the, the first mate of the Jolly Roger. Mm. And his character in Hook is called... I can't remember. Is it something really kind of twee, like buttons? It's something like that. Uh, listener, I'm definitely not going onto the internet to look this up. The actor's name was Arthur Mallet, and he played Tootles. Oh, go on. Tootles. Tootles. And, and is it the same actor? It is the same actor, yeah. Oh, great. Okay, good. I, I, like, I like the fact that you've got two Robin Williams films with, with, with that actor in. That's, that's nice to know. He's probably dead, I'm guessing. I don't know. I'd have to turn my phone back on. <laughs> well... Um, I think we can... Well, it was 20, nearly 25 years ago, I think we can... If, if, if he's not dead, it. then good. Uh, then please write in. Yes, please, please write in if you're not dead. But Kenneth dies. Kenneth passes away. Yes, and in a kind of comical way, but also if you're a child that's just gone, Yay! Yeah, yeah, toys, toys. Christmas, a boy dressed as a big gingerbread man. A, a man is dead. Dead, dead old man carted away in toy ambulance. Yeah. And his last, wor- his last words, of course, were going to say that, uh, because J- his brother, yes. General Leland Zevo, played by Michael Gammon, has come to visit him. And he says, why, why, why are the beanie? And Owen Owens explains, well, it's hooked up to his pacemaker. And he says, it's, it's whimsical, Leland. And then he just pitches face forward and, and dies. Yeah, and that more or less sums up the uneven tone of the film. Yeah, case closed. It's hard to know who this is aimed at. Is yeah. it adults with a sense of childlike wonder that they've kept? Mm. Is it children who are too old for this? Yeah. Is it the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences? Who's it for? I don't know. It film students. It's baffling. I, and the thing is, is that I, I remember enjoying it as a kid, but still being traumatised traumatized by certain elements of it. Yeah, but later on it does get super weird. 
And the effort they make to... Even leading up to that moment with the beanie, the slinky going down the stairs and the, the you know, the, the toys in, in the um, shots. The, um, the staircase that rolls backwards and forwards... Yes. ...towards the, um, the door to the office... It's, there's so, there is so much effort going into create this world mm. without thinking through what the audience is going to think. Yeah. Because you have all these surreal things. And think, oh, it's going to be a nice sort of whimsical environment for a, for a, a whimsical story. But, mm. but then it, the movie basically starts with an old man dying. Even though it's done you know, extremely tastefully and very... Um, you know, it's a PG-rated movie and it pretty much... It doesn't really push that apart from one bit that I'll go into later yes um, uh, which includes Jamie Foxx's uh, a dodgy scene involving Jamie Foxx which we'll get into later we'll get into that later that's not the one I meant oh um, there's more than one. Oh yeah I forgot Jamie Foxx is in this yeah I think toys and this is a fact children men and women listening to the uh, well I don't know boys, who audience is boys and, boys and girls around the world well, of course, because it's toys, I don't know who audience is in this episode. <laughs> um, but, but toys does technically feature Jamie Foxx's first sex scene. Jamie Foxx? Yeah, because he's, he's a voyeur in, in this, in this uh, macabre. It doesn't count. That doesn't count as a sex scene if you're just looking, watching it on TV. For the sake of the episode description, can't we say... <laughs> oh, I can just make stuff up. Don't worry about that. Yeah. Well, they do <laughs> <laughs> in this film. But it is stated in Kenneth's will mm. that control of, uh, where control of the factory will pass. Mm. Because the assumption is within the family that it would go to Kenneth's eldest son, Leslie. But, but we do hear Kenneth say that I don't think Leslie's ready. Yes. Leslie is, is played by Robin Williams. Mm-hmm. Is very much a, a man-child. He like, talks a lot. He's Robin Williams. He's Robin Williams. And he's not the main character in this film, by any means. He's the protagonist. He's the central character, but he's not necessarily the one upon whom the film spends most of its time. That's why it's a bit of a mess, because Michael Gambon is is ultimately the evolving antagonist, and yet we spend most of it in his shoes. Yeah, because... And the the annoying thing is that the the characters develop in a very poorly thought-out way. Leslie is supposed to go from being a complete like child in a man's body to grasp and um, understand responsibility while retaining that, that childishness that you need to run a, ch- run a toy factory and have that element of innocence and imagination. And he, and he does a bit, but not much, mm. and sort of enough so that the story doesn't disintegrate completely in that way. Yeah, it, it's more like Willy Wonky. Were you saving that up? Well, I was gonna, I was gonna go the other way, which would involve a censorship moment. So yeah, more like Willy. W- uh, don't do that now, Willy Wally. I'm saving up the bleeps for later. Yeah, but while well, we have um, Leland, who starts off as being a grumpy, possibly retired general. He doesn't seem to... He goes around in his uniform all the time. He never actually goes to... Well, goes to work. works in the factory. But he doesn't do anything um, military. Well, the exposition is very poorly played out. And yeah. little, uh, the worst one being quite early on where he is consulting uh, the grandfather. Uh, oh, yes. Because their grandfather is uh, a general as well. And there's a whole one-sided conversation where he's going... Well, you know, they wouldn't let me go any further in the military because of my British accent, which I, which I, which I inherit, which I ended up getting from my time over there. Yeah, from his first posting. And the joke is that grand, Grandad, played by Jack Warden, another Cinema Limbo alumnus, because he played the president in being there, mm-hmm. he just speaks in a... Yeah. And you can make it one word in five. And I think that's supposed to be funny. But it doesn't work. I, I mean, this is the thing. It, it, it's, it doesn't. Also, it's a very it's a very brief shot. But the impression I get is that the grandfather is stationed in a tent inside the actual building. The grandfather, well, the grandfather is very old and in bed, and he's so as he's in a military field hospital tent, mm. which in turn is inside the drawing room of the family house. Mm. 
And also, speaking of fields, of course, this the, the field is this ridiculously the, strange landscape. Isn't that's it? a real landscape. That's the most, I think, the most bizarre part of the movie. That landscape of these rolling fields of long grass and perfect blue sky to the horizon is absolutely real. Um, Where it, is it? It's in southeastern Washington State, bordering into Idaho. Cool. It looks absolutely amazing. Yeah. And it's perfectly too. It has that, that storybook visual to it of just the green and the blue and the little winding road going through it and mm. the rolling hills. It looks sensational. And they drive to the, the, the family home. And it's a pop-up house. Yes. And I think that's not full size. <laughs> but it's a very good just visual composite where they have the car, the car from the funeral cortege mm. pulling up into the driveway and the house actually folds down and all the rooms fold out. And quick question. Do you reckon then, if it is actually filmed in the Washington fields... Did you say Washington? Washington State, yeah. Washington State. Because later on the meeting... We'll go back to it, but they have, there's a meeting in the field and it's referred to the people that they're meeting are the Washington... The, the guys from Washington. Oh, yeah. Do you reckon that's intentional? Do you reckon it, it's, it's canon, canonistically set in Washington State? Well, no, they'd be from Washington, D.C. They'd be from the Pentagon, wouldn't they? I don't know. Well, he's talking to... Well, the idea is that he's presenting all his ideas to the Pentagon. So presumably they would be from the Pentagon in, in Washington, D.C. rather than Washington State. I don't think it's deliberate. So it's somewhere between Washington State and Washington, D.C. That's in, in this world, potentially. What is the setting i don't understand and that maybe that's the point well yeah but yeah no i it's it just the thing is it's i was something i picked up on because they make such an effort with the set design throughout when you get moments outside of it it doesn't it it, it it's jarring i think you know if i had done it uh well i wouldn't have, i wouldn't have but well he well what was your thought process though well I think I think if you're going to set it in kind of a dreamscape, then you've got to keep it in the dreamscape, even if the antagonist doesn't necessarily want to be in that. Like on the one hand, you'll have a scene where he's sitting uh, in the field by a lake with with his son, which we'll get back to in a, in a short while. Then on the other hand, you'll get Leslie in a hotel room, which is on a, on a normal road, you know, um, with uh, the love interest. That's her house. No, it's a, it's a it's a hotel. It was a flat. It was an apartment. Yeah. 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 But. But still, it's it's sort of jarring. It, it's like that building in particular, though. I think they chose quite carefully to make it sort of Art Deco, make it very stylized. There is ev- everything is always very stylized. Why is she going to work wearing like a military tunic from the cover of Sergeant Pepper? Yeah, but she works in the photocopying room. It's because you know, it's whimsical. Yeah, I think that's the reason for everything. Yeah, and it's not really enough. No, there needs to be. If you're going to do a storybook story in full-size live action fine but you need to be consistent to that and it has to make sense internally Mm. and the problem here is that it doesn't because you've got all the crazy military stuff later on and you've got Saving Private Ryan with tin toys well this is what I didn't get uh, when in that funeral scene after after the after the first time we see the house with Alsatia played by Joan Cusack yeah was that then they they go to the funeral uh, procession. Of course there's the you know very uh, visual gag of the fact that oh take dad's car and it's a dodger it's a dodgem. But then, who are all these normal people who attend the funeral? This is the thing. It's like, why, why is there that, who that are contrast? The, who are all these straights? Well, uh, I imagine there are other family members, business associates. Why don't any of the workers go if he was such a good boss? Something's fishy. Why are they not invited? Well, it's a private family service, and there'll be a, a memorial for him at a later date. It's outrageous. Uh, well, I think it's only fair. Also, bear in mind that the road is very small. And it would be difficult to get everyone in and out but easily. It's a, bi- it's a big elephant. Yes, well, that's the family... Uh, or the, the factory mascot is Milton the Friendly Elephant. Well, let me put it another way. The... You know Barrel Laughs? The Barrel of Laughs in the coffin. Yeah. That is another indication of not knowing when to laugh in this film. Because they do, it's the inappropriateness in that scene that they don't know when to laugh. And, you know, Michael Gammon's sort of looking at them in disgust as Leslie and, uh, the, pre- and the, uh, the, the priest, uh, re- you know, they're meant to be, you know, paying their respects and everything. And there's a barrel of laughs emanating from the coffin. 
and they start laughing and, and then they and then he turns this is our you know big long batteries you know yeah. taps and then that that once again sums up the awkwardness of the film is that you don't know how to react to a lot of it yes I mean the idea is that it's it's Kenneth you know giving everyone one last laugh and that or maybe he doesn't his funeral to be deadly serious well you know well, I mean, given that his 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 gravestone is a giant elephant that blows bubbles. Well, it's it's only three years after we had, uh, you know, Jack Nicholson uh, lying there with his uh, barrel of laughs. Oh yes. bag of laughs. Meanwhile, outside of Gotham's perimeters, out, out in, in what may as well be the same fictional universe, the moon could be the moon. No, um, no. Leland is to take over the running of the factory. Yes, and we do get some exposition that he. He has his accent because he was stationed in the UK mm. at whatever age where your accent solidifies, which is in your 20s, apparently. I could have been a four-star general if it wasn't for my cursed British accent. Yeah, and apparently he's got a, a, appropriately enough. He has a big chip on his shoulder about only being a three-star. And, he, yeah, he saw a linguist, apparently. Oh, yes, and he learned one and phrase. Do but, you have it written down? Was, what was it? One of my own men tried to frag me. Yes, that's not the phrase, but I mean that's. But we're getting this very strong impression. But from, this is really odd because if you meet an antagonist, for the most part, it's usually the protagonist or someone on the good side of things going, "Oh, that guy." But from this one, we're going. He's going. I really don't understand why people didn't like me. Uh, why? Why am I not more popular? Yeah. So he's he's not reached the level in his career that he wanted. His mm. own staff don't like him. His most loyal soldier is his own son who yes. is devoted to him in all fairness and even his dad thinks he's a disappointment yes and what we should say before we get to that grandfather scene is his little tour of the uh, of the factory which introduces a motif that will not just go away the music sung the main theme happy workers by Tori Amos oh my I like it yeah, the first time. And it's very sinister. Even when they're going, even when all the toy workers even, are dancing. Even, even the happy version of the song sounds sinister. So when the actual sinister version starts, yeah. it just, it's not sinister enough. They cut away. In the first time we, in the first scene that we hear Happy Workers by Tori Amos with all the toy, work, toy factory workers like kind of dancing as they're working. Yeah. It's, it goes away just as they're about to hum it. <laughs> and I thought that would give it a whole kind of slightly you know communist factory kind of vibe yeah it does it's like this is maybe how north korea sees itself or we own rio (laughs) where it's everyone singing along to a fun song everyone's got a job smile smile damn you smile smile or we'll staple your face that way yeah and 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 everyone's wearing the brightly colored clothes and later on the general wears uh, like very mul- brightly multicolored camouflage fatigues, which which, as someone pointed out, serve absolutely no purpose other than to say yeah. colours. But it, I mean, if we were going to be conspiracy theorists about this, we could also imply that when you work at the factory, you start becoming infected <laughs> by the whimsy, and you know that's that's why they're all quite happy just to just to run. You know, <laughs> well, Owen Owens is very down to earth. He's very sensible and practical. Well, he, maybe he caused the virus. Maybe he, maybe he, maybe he's the real man. But he takes the, but he takes the side of Leslie and everyone else later on. So he's clearly, in, he's he's pro whimsy, but he's not, he's of it. He's yeah. not of it, but he's for it, like yeah. France. Yeah, I'm in favour of France, but I'm not French. Hmm. Yes. Yeah, that's a perfectly fair analogy. That doesn't make that's that doesn't make any complete nonsense at all. Oh, and the other thing is that um, Leland is also sleeping with his father's nurse, which is an important plot point, which comes back later for no reason at all. Now, do how did you get to that conclusion? Because when I was watching it, they just make they say he just says, "Do you want to go out for dinner?" and she says something, and that's it. I, I get the impression that it's a kind of regular arrangement, right? Because also, let's not forget his previous wife, Edie, died from appendicitis. Yes. Well, he says she died from appendicitis. You don't believe him? Well, he hasn't done much to endear himself to me so far. 
Well, he clearly he wasn't darking, dancing to happy workers, and obviously I was instantly suspicious. He was wearing a hat indoors. Yeah, what a what a. B- I have no time for that kind of nonsense. And, and but also, I you know what the moment that he became an antagonist for me. Maybe it's just because we're in the twenty first century. But it's also when um, we see Alsatia, uh, played by Jane Cusack, wearing dolls' clothing and the, and the, the creepy hair, and he goes, "I don't have any time for sissy stuff." I just thought, yeah. oh, you're, you're a bit of a git, aren't you, really? Oh, I've no, I've, I've no time for all this doll stuff. Now I have to get back to my work in the toy factory. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. And you've, you've not really thought any of this through, have you? And Yeah, it's, I mean, the, the thing is, is that when, when we finally get them all in one room, which is, um, which is when you've got... Uh, they're, they're, he announces that he's going to get his son involved, which is played by Mr. LL Cool J. Yes. Doing it and doing it and doing it wow. And that's how I knew him from the soundtrack to, I believe it was, uh, The Nutty Professor starring Eddie Murphy. Uh, for some reason, I had the soundtrack to it. Actually, wait, did I? Where the hell did I find out that song? I think it was. I don't know why I had the soundtrack. Well, that's because he used to be addicted to MTV. Well, aren't we all? Not anymore. No. Because the M stands for mediocre. And the T stands for... Toilets, and that's on the record. Mediocre toilets. Although I've heard recently, music television is going to bring music back. Yeah, because it's entirely a garbage programming now, and they're actually going to start showing music videos again. There is a fantastic book about MTV. It's an oral history of MTV, and it's absolutely superb. It's sort of the golden age from the beginning to sort of mid nineties, late nineties, and. I, I can't remember the name, but there's only one of them. So, listener, if you're interested, so, so it's that one. It's that one. The or, just type in oral history MTV book, and you'll you'll find it. But it, it really is quite good. Well, in that case, I'm going to recommend the Disaster Artist by Greg Sestero. We should have a book club. Why don't we do that as a separate thing? I'm, I'm actually already a member of a book club in 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 the real world. Why don't we do book limbo? That could be a spin-off. Because it takes a long time to read a book. That's true. Well, we could do it once a year. Back to the house, then. Yes. The, uh, the doll's house. The ha- doll's house outside of the uh, doll's house. The family. The, the, the family mansion. Family mansion. Yeah. And yeah, we're introduced to Mr. LL Cool J. Uh, doing it, doing it, doing it well. And he, yeah, I mean, he, he uh, well, he's not introduced in the most um, uh, straight-laced kind of no, way. No, he's an expert in camouflage, and he will disguise himself as items of furniture. He'll paint himself the colour of the wall. The reason he's actually brought in is because we see a, a meeting where they're talk, everyone is talking about new toy lines and you know, the general business, and Leland is sort of phasing out, and he's just kind of... His mind's wandering, he's staring into space. And then someone mentions that there's been some industrial espionage, and that snaps him straight back to yeah. attention. So, ah, espionage, right, this is something I know about. Yeah. Oh, my, my son's an expert in that. Oh, we need to bring him in. Well, once again, another scene where it's from his perspective, and you think, really, what? Why? Why is this? Is from you know? Why can't it be from Yardley Smith? Yeah, who's yeah in the in the flesh for a rare occasion. I mean, when we finally get them all sitting there at the dinner table, the other implication, of course, is Alsatia, a little bit of an eccentric. Yeah, she eats mayonnaise sandwiches, and at the ta- at the dinner table on the first one, she it's just bread with pills in. Yes, and she also uh, in the cafeteria or in the factory asks for an applesauce sandwich because she's just delightfully kooky except as we later find out this doesn't make any sense at all based on what we find out later on i got the impression she needed anything that kind of was basically very easy to have have in her gullet yes she does say that um food that's easy to digest but why is she taking pills and where does it go well, I imagine a similar direction. Does she get emptied once a month? I think that people would notice. We may as well give. I mean, if you know them, if you haven't seen the movie, you probably shouldn't be listening to this anyway. Yeah. Alsatia is a robot. And also, how are you spelling Alsatia? Because I'm basically spelling it like Alsatian without an N at the end. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, is there any context to that name? Uh, she's from Alsatia. Um, I'm shrugging. Well, well actually, it's Al- Al- Alsace, which is the it's Strasbourg, in fr- the French-German border, Alsace-Lorraine. Now, is that a toy, famous toy place or something like that? Is there any? No, no. 
It's famous for um, Cronenberg beer, I think. Um, the European Parliament. So is there a conspiracy that um, her character is made by the Cronenberg factory? Uh, it would explain all the body horror, and it would also explain why she's almost a pet. Yes. So that's quite a weird choice of name. Why not give her a normal name? Her last name is Zivo. I like the fact that when they go for um, false names later on, when they're posing as MTV performers, they go yeah. for Steve and Yolanda. Yolanda. Well, given that the song is... The actual song is sung by Thomas Dolby. Is it? Yeah. He, Robert yeah. Williams not trying to sing in that. Oh, no, it, no, sorry. Thomas Dolby wrote it, and he performs a version that goes over the end credits, but Robin Williams... In the scene where it's being performed by Leslie, it is Robin Williams singing. You can tell it is clearly his voice. Because because before we even came up with the idea of doing toys as an episode, the one key phrase that stands out in my head vividly is him singing "What is real?" badly. What is real? He's not a natural singer. By the way, Enya is also on the soundtrack. Oh yes, that's weird. No, I don't think so. I think that her ethereal tones match the uh, surrounding landscape of waving fields and billowy skies. Happy workers. Now, that's Tori Amos. Mm. Which, incidentally, if you listen to Happy Nation by Ace of Base, which, I, if I'm not mistaken, preceded this film, it's a very similar song. Is it Happy Nation? It's something like something Nation. nation it's not Rhythm Nation. Living in this no, that's Janet Jackson. Well, I, the, only reason is, uh, the only reason that I know it, because I remember buying it, probably the first album I ever bought, distressingly, um, on cassette uh, from our price in Bromley, uh, was uh, Ace, the Ace of Bass album. First album I ever bought was the Batman Forever soundtrack. That's, which, that's, which, that's got some good tracks which on. Which I ordered with Tiger Tokens. ba ba da ba da ba ba uh, that's not the same one, is it? Is it the same? Yep. No, no? Yes, it is. Oh, yeah, yeah. So discussion at the factory moves on to the idea of war toys. Yes. This leads on to two philo- the two different philosophies of the, of the brothers, because we then have this um, parallel conversation where you've got Alsatia and Leslie and you've got uh, Leland and Patrick. And Leland's philosophy is keep your, uh, treat your... Treat your enemies like your friends. Now, hang on. Yes, yes. Leland's right. well, treat your enemies works, like, by the way. Treat your enemies like your friends and your friends like your enemies. And his brother Kenneth's philosophy, as cited by Leslie, was uh, and uh, Alsatia is keep your friends as your friends and your enemies as your enemies. Yes. Doesn't mean anything. Nope. But um, Leslie also says that Kenneth had considered war toys in the past, but decided that they were the domain of the small penis. Yes. Now I think we all had toy guns when we were little. Or trucks, or things like that. But I think there is, uh, beyond a certain boundary, I think it's, maybe it's an American thing. Because the America, the, uh, half of the budget in America is spent on the military. And um, they like their guns and their rocket launchers and yeah. other fun things like that. Yes. Where it's less of a thing in the UK where it's very hard to own a gun. <laughs> happy workers. Yeah, well, they're happy, you know, making little elephant toys and dancing um, strawberries. Well, so here's the thing. When we cut to six weeks later and, and, and he's announcing his plans and he says, oh, you haven't come up with anything and everything like that. Yeah. It's not good enough. <laughs> it's just... When, that's when he's wearing the body and sound coats, you know. Very uh, Leslie's, uh, Robin Williams is playing a very, is wearing a body and sound coat. So. Oh yes, and um, what? Like, even even the insults don't really make any sense. And uh, this probably will evolve a bleep, but I am quoting the film. But Michael Gambon goes, "This is baby shit." It's like, really? Yeah, it's just, it just, it's just whimsy. Now we're being forced to look at this. 
this yeah. additional stuff which has no purpose. And, and of course now, because there's a security team involved, it's a remix of Happy Workers, which features hoo-ha, hoo-ha, which I was listening to the radio today, and Welcome to the Pleasure Dome by Frankie Goes to Hollywood was playing, and it has exactly the same hoo-has. I believe it's actually credited as a remix on the movie. What, remixed in? Yeah, it's credit it's credit sampled or, or remixed to combine the two. Wow. Because there were some of the um chords in it. Yes. Says the person who doesn't know anything about music. Match does match very close. I think that's too close to be um coincidence or a, a copyright free knockoff. Holly Johnson, if you're listening, you should sue Barry Levins. No, don't he doesn't need that in his life as well. And, and then we can all get our refunds from buying toys on VHS, which, to be fair, would have accumulated by now. So you probably owe us more like £30 rather than 10 Well, I bought it each. on DVD for a fiver. And didn't even have any extras. What a rip-off. It, the DVD doesn't have any extras? No. Oh. See, that's something that needs a ruddy commentary. Well, 20th Century Fox is quite... Um, they don't like putting any, any more work in than they have to on their catalogue titles. So, new to... I mean, things that are getting a new release on DVD, current films, will often get quite a few things on them, like... Ooh, like on uh, X-Men Origins Wolverine. Yeah. You can't move for pointless, nonsensical public relations rubbish. But on something like Toys, where you'd really benefit from background information, a director's commentary, some kind of retrospective... Or even just the original electronic press kit so you could see what people at the time were saying about it during the production. Nothing. Here's my theory on, on DVD uh, extras, uh, Blu-ray extras, commentaries and so forth. If Troma can afford to have a drunken commentary on Cannibal the Musical, which I'd strongly recommend to anyone who hasn't seen it if they're a fan of South Park, this was the, the film... This is sort of live-action South Park that predates South Park. It's the film that they made, uh, Matt Stone and Trey Parker made in college uh, in Colorado, University of Colorado, and I think they more or less got expelled for doing it. <laughs> and, and the fact that they could also include a retrospective commentary, which I'm yet to listen to, which I'm very excited about. And it's one of the funniest things I've ever heard. But the fact that they can incorporate all these extras on these... On these uh, I mean, it's... And I was really disappointed to look to The Revenant, to... The Hateful Eight to... Um, which other films came out recently? Deadpool on DVD, on Blu-ray. Really nothing. Really nothing at all. Nothing on Deadpool. That's quite surprising. Ba- barely barely, not, barely anything. Because there's loads you could put on there. You could have a commentary by Deadpool. Well, I mean, I mean, it, there's so much possible... I mean, the fact that he's already doing radio ads... British radio ads. Yeah. But, I mean, yeah, it's extremely disappointing. Have they just given up now, or is it a case of, right, who wants it now, and who can wait ten years when we, when we do the celebratory anniversary edition? I think it's a mixture of both. I think, in general, I think that the audience for extra features is quite limited. It's a shame. I know it is. But it means that it's much... That uh, they're not going to shift that many more copies through having extra features to make it worth the while to do them. Mm. The thing is, if they have the space for it, then it's not even so much about the audience at that point. It's more a case of certainly in the present, in the modern day, it should be. I mean, because you, you get a lot of cases, even certainly in television shows as well as films, where you get creators willing to give their audience a bit more on the side. Hmm. And, and being aware of the fact that there's things to share and that there, there is an audience of it. And so it's kind of insulting or strange to me that, you know, The Revenant or any of these Oscar films, The Big Shorts, you know, fourteen ninety nine to download on HD Amazon. And I think, well, if I look at the DVD or the Blu-ray, there's no extras anyway. So, yeah, why not? Sod hmm. it. You know, I may as well get it on Amazon because they're not trying. Um, no. They're not even competing. It's, it's very much, in my personal opinion, it's very much like how, the, how Terrestrials just slowly started giving up when it had about 900 channels to compete with and, and everything just started spreading very thin. It's like, well, why, why, would she, why, why should we bother trying to incorporate a, a film premiere because it's going to go on Sky Premiere? That annoys me. The, yes. The, the way that the idea of the, the network movie premiere has been so badly devalued. I think a big milestone was when um, Star Wars Episode Two: Attack of the Clones 
was given its British TV premiere on ITV. It went out at 9pm on a Thursday. Yeah. The perfect time to show a Star Wars film. Mm. And because ITV... ITV is very terrible with this. They seem, they, they still haven't shown Inception, which they know they have the rights to, and it came out six years ago. Mm. Six years ago. The, the feeling of it being a special event has been diminished. I think it's just because everything is now so much more easily available. But it's a shame. Well, Anywho... Tying back to another previous Cinema Lover episode, one of the main security guards in the factory is uh, played by the actor who played Mauser in the Police Academy sequels. I thought I recognised him, and he's been in other stuff since, and I can't figure out Well, what. a main reason he hasn't been in too much is because in the late 80s, before this movie came out, he had a horrible accident and broke his neck. Is that why he looks the way he does? I believe so. He was um, in hospital for a very long time. He was actually a quadriplegic, I believe, for a so, while. So the double chin is actually part of his... It's a, uh, it's a consequence of his medical condition. Right, right. But still, it's given him jobs. Well, he's, 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 able, he's able-bodied in this. He, he's very gradually recovered uh, movement. In relation to the security team, which includes Mauser, bearing in mind this is about half an hour into the film, they visit the love interest who's finally introduced. Yes. We barely get her name. I get it. I got it very fleetingly. Anna, I think. No, it's not. It's Gwen. <laughs> really? Because all I heard her in, in her in her southern twang was Anna, and I assumed that was her name. Beyond I, that, I would have, absolutely have no idea her name. I think her name was Gwen. I cannot figure out on uh, what on earth her name was. There's no real proper... In- For all the exposition they give, there's really no opportunity to find out her name. No. And she's played by um, Robin Wright. I'm going to have to rewatch this now again. You've made... Robin Wright of House of Cards? Yes. Oh, my... Of The Princess Bride? Goodness. Because I, she's amazing in House of Cards. I have still never seen House of Cards. And, uh, oh my goodness, I'm going to have to look at this again. Wow. Well, that makes sense, I suppose. But what do you think of her in, um, as question mark character in Toys? I, she's the only close to normal character that we have, I would say. Because yeah. if you look at all the other ones. E- uh, well, yeah, because Owen, e- Owen Owens is kind of a caricature of an old man. Everyone else is very eccentric, even the general and his mm. son. Although we all know that he's probably the evil genius behind all of his conspiracy. So mistrustful. Pulling the strings. You know, just because we saw that conversation between, you know, he, he, could, have, he could have twisted that. He could have manipulated, kind of say, oh, you know what you should do? You should give, it, give it to your brother, because, you know. There you go, spreading discord again. I reckon Owen Owens is a proper Iago. Well, he goes to hospital. Iago Hospital. Iago. Iar. Oh, you mean like the parrot in... Um, Shakespeare, yes. Aladdin? In, in Othello. Isn't Iago the name of... Um, Do you Jafar's know your Shakespeare? I know, I know that he's he, Othello's best friend who betrays him. I do know that. And I know that Othello's wife is Desdemona. Thank you, well, Mr. Clever. Well, no, I, no. I was just making a point of saying Iago is the parrot in Aladdin. In Aladdin, right? Yes. But originally, the name Iago descends from Othello, Shakespeare's Othello, with Des, with Des and Demona. Yes, not Les Demo- Leslie Demona. Um, but uh, yes, and and that and if you want to see a good uh, performance of it, Kenneth Branagh. Uh, is is a good, plays a good Iago in the film Othello. Not too surprisingly, and it's not. I think it's the only Shakespeare film he's in which he didn't direct. It's mm. Oliver Parker, who also did the recent Dad's Army remake. But is I, that any good? It's it's as good as it was ever likely to be. So um, the love interest um, in that first scene, Robin Williams and her, they're clearly. Little, Clearly, a little bit of improv going on. He's make, he makes a Michael Jackson joke. He's like doing with the photocopy things. That was before and after, and all this. And you think, ooh, ooh. It was the last time you could get away with making those jokes before it all went a bit dark. Yeah, it's sort of the idea. That she there's constantly she's because she's sort of the most straight laced normal character in it. 
really in many respects she's she's like just laughs at all his jokes <laughs> oh yeah he's so he's like so tolerating nice. you <laughs> you say that she's the most normal character in the movie and you're right but she still rides to work on a bike with stabilizers yes yeah also why would you go to work why like we see her apartment later on she doesn't live in the area why is she getting a bike it, it's i get a cab uber or something it doesn't make any sense it's a field you know, in the middle of nowhere. Do you know how far I cycle to go to work? Do you use stabilizers, though? No, but that's because I learned to ride a bike when I was nine. Well, she should do it in her own time and then take the stabilizers off. Well, she's it, cycling home, though. Is she? She's, yeah, because... It's still a Les- bit of a trip. Leslie picks her up and says, oh, I'll give you a ride. Yeah. So that's fine, because she's, so she's not like wasting time on like the company's time. She's on her way home. So maybe she gets a lift with someone else and throws the bike in the back on the way there. Hmm. Just another thing in the movie that hasn't been thought through because they can't decide how realistic they want it to be. And also, why are we now seeing him in a normal car, which is his own car, granted, but why isn't he in the bumper again? If he's so... If he's well, so that, because that was his dad's car. Yeah. So that one's special. But, and... The bumper car is... It's only a bumper car. It's little. And he's driving around in, like, a classic uh, open-top open car. Makes more sense than a bike. Well, I could, Yeah, it does. <laughs> I'm, it's hard for me to defend. You're the one who suggested this movie. <laughs> well, this is this is one of many jarring moments. Because then, when, now that they've shoved Anna in... Uh, Anna, as I'm going to call her. Uh, or Gwen, or whatever Just her name Robin is. Robin Wright. Robin Wright. Well, they sort of crowbarred her into the plot about a th- about a third of the way in. They they then literally like there's a there's a there's a scene straight after that where she meets encounters Alsatia in the bathroom and uh, yeah, that's weird. There's no logic for it. It's like it's like what, oh why? yeah, the, yeah. Alsatia says, "Oh yeah, he really likes you." And it's and and she's standing in the corner and singing because the acoustics in there are really good. And it's just, yeah, it's whimsy on top of whimsy. And I like her light, fun... Mimsy. I like light, fun silliness. But it's just... It's like it's being forced into my throat and into my ears and up my nose, into every orifice and crevice available. Mm. And I don't enjoy it. No, and, and we haven't even reached the peak of that. No, we haven't. No. We haven't got to the point where the film decides, fuck it. And completely disintegrates. Pop will eat itself. Yeah. Well, the thing is, is that then we get into this big political clumpy bit where it's... it's Well, there is a bit that um, before then where um, Patrick, LL Cool J's character, is is eating in the cafeteria with everyone else. And he's complaining that the way the food's served because the different things on his plate are touching. Yes. And I've seen people complain, well, why is he talking about complaining about it being a military plate and food doesn't touch? And then I realised that it's it's like in prison where they have the, the big square plate with the separate spaces for different food. And because he's a military guy, he likes a military meal where the things don't touch. So he's like a crazy eccentric as well. Yeah. But in a different way. Yes. And even though he's all tough and secure and everything, he's actually doesn't seem that bad and it turns out that he isn't he's actually a bit misguided but fundamentally a decent human being you know what i'd say i'd say in terms of the most fluid character like i mean you know the one who develops yeah the one who who develops like he's the most rational in terms of like yeah rationally responsive as in he reacts to his father because he loves his dad you know and then and then he reacts to going hang on a minute this isn't right you know, yeah, and the, there's there's the turn in the character where he realizes he's been lied to his whole life yeah. about what happened to his mother, and then he turns against him, and it's it's a bit clunky, but it's it makes sense within the story, and you can follow through. that is a reasonable progression that I can buy into. Yeah, but then a lot of other characters just don't change, or in the case of Leland, he just becomes more and more crazy. Yeah, and, and that's not how you develop a character because if it's if it's meant to be an ideological conflict, when one of the ideologies is I'm crazy, that's not a conflict. That's normal people versus insane people, and when the normal people are also crazy but just not murderous, then the movie 
falls to, into pieces. Well, this is the thing because then they do this whole thing where they go into town and they do their research, and it's and it's they and and Leland gets hooked into video games, and there's meant to be this sort of relatively dark statement, you know, that that oh well, you've either got the you've, you've, there's no divide, it, there, there's no, there's nothing in between, I should say. There's 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 either you've either you've got the world of bright bright and blue and green and white and 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 slinky toys and tin toys and 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 oh. all this, or you've got video games where you want to kill things and there's nothing in between we don't well we don't really see any zevo style video games ah apart from the woozy helmet were you going to mention that which is a direct well they 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 put that scene straight after the they don't even try to pretend to not draw a contrast that scene is directly after the video games the uh, the first arcade games uh and, it, but it, and it, the weird thing is that it's not even a video game. It's just like a helmet you wear that plays back footage of white water rafting. Well, this is the thing, because if it's making a political statement about how video games are just kind of corrupt and they make, you know, they, they, it's all very violent, and they draw the straight contrast with, well, no, actually, there's virtual reality and it's white water rafting, it's water rafting, and, uh, and you know, and, and there are benefits to it. It instantly contradicts its own statement. So it, it goes out, it, it, you're watching it going, hang on, what, what, what point are they trying to make? Well, mate, the, the game's... That they're playing in the video arcade. They're they're war games. They're running around, running around. They're driving around, shooting. Um, and the game that uh, Le- uh, Leland plays, you're driving a tank. You've got to shoot the bad guys. And if you shoot a UN truck, you yes. lose points. And he stu- and he gets more and more fixated on shooting the UN trucks because yeah. he's crazy. Yeah. And because he's addicted to war, because that's a, a character trait that human beings have. Yeah. But then, if you're going to do that, you have to. Either your statement is video games are evil, which is stupid and reactionary, mm. or that he's found a a, um, a channel for his own feelings about war toys, and that because it then does feed into the rest of the movie. So you do need to show. Oh, here is a here is a Zevo style video game. It needs to be a video game, not just a virtual reality helmet. So something like a game that I remember is like Loco Rocco, mm. which is you're a big blob rolling around a landscape and you've got yeah. to get around obstacles and you can separate into little into little tiny blobs and that's like a fun happy game with lots of smiling scenery that's the kind of thing that Ziva would make they should show something like that say no video games can be nice they can be gentle and kind and fun and not you know violence simulators mm. but they don't do that and well, they don't know what they're doing what it makes makes less sense one of the uh, the main uh, products you could purchase post release was toys the video game <laughs> which i think there is some footage on youtube and i recommend people hunting it out because it's just it just continues to be odd is it is it what kind of game is it, is it like a platform game or it, i believe it is a platform game and it kind of it turns in on itself halfway through and you play leslie and uh, yeah it, there's war toys involved and and then I say half of it turns you, and then you're sucked into the TV screen, and then Leslie plays you. Uh, that'd be fine. I'd, I'd be I'd be open. To no, that. It wouldn't be. It would be a nightmare. I don't want to be in a video game. Well, I, now there must be. There is a film. There must be a film where someone gets trapped in a video game, right? Um, sort of. Tron. Oh yeah, Tron. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, right. Case closed. <laughs> yeah. Tron Legacy and is on the list for Cinema Limbo. I love Tron Legacy. War games. Technically, um, kind of. The Last Starfighter. Yes. Oh, it's a very long time since I've seen The Last Starfighter. Um, because, yeah, because the video game turns out to be a training program for a real conflict. Actually, Ender's Game. Yes. Which surely would predate everything, because it was written in the 50s, wasn't it? Ender's Game is a very strange book. When we get to the, the final, sort of, say, half an hour of the film, I'll, I'll let you lead on that one um, because for me it, it, I had to watch it in chunks it was it was hard to revisit and i tell you why because maybe because it is all set in one place for the most part <laughs> but I watched it in chunks over a day re-watched it in chunks over a day and the thing is it's like the, the, the moment where Leland and Patrick go camping at night after they've had their video game adventure and he sort of goes full pattern uh, as yes. flares drop down Yes, he does. And it's just this... Yeah, it's, it, that, and I think it's shortly after that we see the introduction of his new clothes. 
Yes, he's finally getting on board with the whole Zevo program. So he now wears a short-sleeved camouflage shirt in bright colours to show that he's getting with the program. And he says, yeah. I'm developing some plans of my own. So I don't have my own area. It has the restricted area, which gradually expands further and further and further. Montage! Yes, it's time for a montage. Um, there, I mean, there are some ideas that I quite liked. I mean, um, the film seems to be pointing to a difference in perception between video games and reality, mm. as if the two are interchangeable. Yeah. Which is... That could, could be... Nonsense. A, well, yes, it's obviously yeah. it's complete rubbish. But I was thinking that it could be one of the earlier examples of this, because it was only about that time that video games in the real world were starting to look like actual real things. Yeah. So and the idea of having an, an interchangeable emotional response, and I remember when I went uh, when I saw Funny Games, oh the Michael Haneke film. Um, oh, I got for a second I thought it said Funny Bones. No, no, no. Which is also one I'd love to talk about at some point. Um, uh, Funny Games. It's it's a film about violence, and it's trying to indict the viewer as being complicit in screen violence and essentially saying well if you know all these people are being horribly killed but why are you still watching and I actually had a sleepless night after I watched the film and was convinced that there was some kind of mental defect wrong with me but then I realised the reason was it's a film that's why I'm not concerned about the violence because there isn't anything wrong with me I can tell the difference between fantasy and reality and I think that's another reason why whatever statement they're trying to make is completely lost from the get-go. Exactly. Because why set the plot in such a dream-like world when you're trying to make a statement about the difference between fantasy and reality and you're, you're saying, oh, you know, all these people are, are you know, um, are these violent video games and so forth. Yeah, that's fine. Um, that would work better if it was playing against the contrast of real life, not against some weird toy factory in the middle of a mysterious field. Um, so it's lost. It's because uh, because it's 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 fantasy playing against fan- other fantasy. It just one's light, one's dark. I mean, it's not Lord of the Bloody Rings. No, it's not. It's it's. But the thing is, Lord of the Rings isn't trying to make a deep statement about the nature of human existence. Or at least, or that's, is it? That's I wouldn't say that's the main thrust of it. Lord of the Rings is about the fight of good mm. versus evil. You may want to rewatch it with a nihilistic asp- uh, approach. Now, I may not want to rewatch it at all. Mm. But the other thing that they come up with is the idea of drones, remotely controlled weapons that can fire upon an enemy. Mm. But of course, because video games, they have to be piloted by children because corruption of innocence. Well, this is where we get to the. Uh interesting part of the film <laughs> where uh, I can see the inverted commas in the air as you said that Leslie and Alsatia by well, extension infiltrate well we, we, we're skipping over this we haven't had the vomit room the vomitorium where they're looking at because the, you said earlier that there are bits of the movie that do seem very obviously improvised and there is a scene where Leslie and several other technicians are looking at several samples of fake vomit in a crossword puzzle room and the walls gradually close in on them yes because the restricted area is being expanded and that seems very heavily improvised very good actually a lot of the dialogue yeah. is great but it doesn't feel it doesn't feel like it was there before the the room it feels like by the way it feels like the direction was guys the room's going to slowly close on you we just want you to just just make jokes about these different kinds of vomit yeah and that's fine. Yeah. I mean, that's how Iron Man was made. By saying, this is what the scene's about. Come up with your own dialogue. Yeah. That's the other part that really doesn't work is the walls in the cafeteria start closing in as well. Which is done in kind of a slow motion, oh, this is, this is, this is, an, this is a, a village being shot kind of yes. attitude. It's like watching a Vietnam War movie. And, he, and he's looking around going, like Leslie's, uh, Robin Williams' character looking around going, you know, like, oh, no. I've got to do something. And it's like, was it bloody late for that? This is the day innocence died. Yeah, but also, to be fair, you don't feel any empathy with the toy workers because they're all idiots anyway. And it's the cafeteria. It, like, it's... Is that the one safe haven they have? I know. I mean, if it was... 
if say the walls were moving in and it was and it was squashing all the all the like the sweet nice toys yeah think oh well that seems like a logical thing to show oh it's innocence being crushed by what have you but no it's a cafeteria getting smaller and, and also pretty pretty crowded after they've stated several times previously that they've sacked loads of people yes because they're perceived as security risks yeah it's very odd no so where where, where are these children eating <laughs> thanks to george for making the time to be on this podcast part two will be available a week after this episode's release and cinema limbo is in the meantime on itunes with almost 20 episodes currently available so please subscribe download and review before the spring winds down however until next time remember there's no reality it's just an illusion goodbye you have been listening to cinema limbo hosted and produced by jeremy phillips edited by martin fenton with music by philip alderman Cinema Limbo is part of the Podnos Podcast Network. Come and visit us at www.podnos.com. Cinema Limbo podcast is part of Podnose, the UK's leading independent entertainment podcasting network. For episode archives of Cinema Limbo and all of the shows on the network, visit us at www.podnose.com. You can also follow us on Twitter via at Podnose or send us an email via admin at podnose.com. Mediocre toilets.